All right, we're talking biblical decision-making this week. Um, how to make decisions in a manner that's consistent with the Word of God. How to use the Word of God to help us make decisions. Okay, yep. Um, in one sense, uh, you say, well, there's certain elements of the Word of God that decision-making is pretty cut and dry. That doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but it's cut and dry, right? The Bible says it, I do it. Uh, and that's what it is. But then there are other things where, you know, the Bible's not necessarily going to tell me explicitly what to do. Uh, the Bible's not going to tell me explicitly whether to buy this house or that house, whether to buy this car or that car. And the question becomes, how do I uh, frame my mind and, uh, my, and, and position myself to make right decisions in the midst of things that are perhaps ambiguous? You add to that... Uh, the final element, which is what happens when there's some moral ambiguity? What happens when the Bible does not explicitly say something one way or another? How do I make these decisions? And uh, how do I determine what is best for me, what is best for my family and such? And so that's what we're going to be going through this evening. Various elements of biblical decision making. I've got a couple of charts here, which I'll be explaining to you um, as, as we go. Things that I, I made some time ago. And I uh, hope that they'll be a help to you um, in, in your personal life, and your family life and such, to be able to make good decisions and to understand how God and, and, and the elements of the Word of God should factor into those decisions. So what we're going to start with is uh, three primary points that kind of lay the foundation for biblical decision making. And then uh, we'll go through what, what I would generally call uh, the steps of biblical decision making. So you start with these kind of these these foundational ideas that lay the groundwork for why why even go through this process and, and the biblical groundwork for it and then going through the process of biblical decision making how do I make decisions and in what order do I frame my mindset to make sure that the, that the decisions I'm making are proper so you've got three points here on the first couple of pages of your notes and, and point number one just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. As it comes to biblical decision making, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I give you a couple of passages of scripture here, both from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, the Bible says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, excuse me. Now, this is not saying if you ever do any of these things, then you're not a believer. Rather, it's simply saying that those whose lives are defined by these things, those who have devoted themselves to, 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 to the, the characteristics of this kind of wickedness, are by, by very nature of the fact that they are devoted to these things, um, reflecting a failure to, ref I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not reflecting the gospel, they're not reflecting Jesus Christ, they're not reflecting power over sin, and there's something very wrong there. Um, and by, as a general rule, when you see a person who is living entirely outside of the biblical mandates, you can, by their fruit, generally say, I, I have no reason to, uh, to, to think that they're a believer. Uh, you don't judge that, right? I don't judge that. Uh, nobody has the right or the ability to judge who goes to heaven and who does not. But 
as far as how am I going to treat that person? Am I going to regard that person as a believer and uh, treat him as such? Because he says he's a believer, well, if he bears absolutely no fruit, well, th- then what, what, what confidence do I have that that person is a believer and should be treated with the kind of honor and uh, trust that I would treat to, to a believer? So uh, that, that's kind of the idea here. Again, it's not, it's not saying that anyone who does any of these things in any circumstance will not inherit the kingdom of God. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is not of, it's not about what we do or not do. Those things are reflective of whether or not we're a believer, but belief is salvation by grace through faith. So he gives this list of, of, those, of, of the characteristics of those who do not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the characteristics of unbelievers. He says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And, excuse me, and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. So uh, the, the context of this was actually about fornication, about sexual sin. But Paul gives this example in verse 13, and he says, meat is for the belly and the belly is for meat, right? The, 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 the belly is intended, we, we just ate a good meal, that's what the stomach is for, right? It's to, it's, it's to process food. I look at meat and I say, that is for my stomach, and, and my stomach is for that meat, right? And that's a good thing. And, and it's been designed that way. But just because my stomach can handle that meat and that meat is, 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 is going to be good doesn't mean I should eat it in every circumstance, right? If, if I've got a, a particular reason why I shouldn't eat a certain type of food, even if my body could digest that food, that's not enough for me to say I should eat that food all the time, right? Just because something is lawful doesn't make it expedient. Just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Just because I can eat Oreos all day doesn't mean I should eat Oreos all day, right? And, and that's kind of this, the idea of this first point. And so um, uh, Paul says the body is for, the, the, the body has been designed to have a sexual function, but it's not for fornication. And that's what he's making a, as a broader point here. But the point that I wanted to draw out is this principle found in verse 12 that just because something is lawful doesn't make it expedient. Just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. And as we think about biblical decision making, I am making decisions for myself, for my family. It's not always about, well, I can do that. It's not going to ruin me or whatever. It's, should I do that? Just because I can do it, does that mean I should do it? And the second passage here in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 21 to 24, Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. We talked about this a little bit in our spirit realm one. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And so, again, Paul says, and, and this comes back to that idea of eating meat offered to idols, right? Paul says, you can do that. 
And in certain circumstances, that's fine. But in other circumstances, if you've got some believer who is weak in the faith and, and, and by eating that is going to offend his conscience, or if you have an unbeliever who comes up and says, this has been offered to devils, well, I can eat it in Christ, but maybe I shouldn't for the sake of my testimony. Maybe I shouldn't for the sake of the conscience of that brother in Christ. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. So we see two principles here about this. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. And the first one is Paul saying, I will not be brought under the power of any. Even though certain things are lawful, I will not place myself under the power of anything but God. And if something is going to, to if, if something has a power over me, even if I can do it in Christ, I, maybe I, I shouldn't be doing it. And then the second one there, he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. That word edify literally means to build up. All things are lawful, but that doesn't mean everything builds other people up. Everything is profitable. So that first principle, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Any thoughts or questions on that first foundational principle? All right, point number two. The things we do in this life matter for the life to come. This is a point that I think um, we don't think in, about enough as, as Christians. Well, we kind of get this idea uh, in our churches that salvation is like the end goal, right? That I've got my kids, and if they profess Christ and, and, and they get saved, they get baptized, it's like, okay, they've arrived. Mission accomplished. Well, in fact, no. right? Mission has just begun. That's when, that's when the real work begins. Because what we do in this life matters for eternity. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 17, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So Paul is... is saying here in this passage, he says, and he's speaking to believers, and he says that there's a foundation, and we all begin by building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And once you have found Jesus Christ by grace through faith, and you have that foundation, then you begin to build something on that, right? Your life begins to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And Something is, is being built with every decision you make, everywhere, every, every, every day, something is being built on that foundation. And, and so he says at first, if any man build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. So he says, basically we're building with two primary types of materials. We're building with rocks and, and metals, or we're building with wood and hay. Now, those are very, very different in their integrity and in their capacity, right? The rocks, the metals, and such, 
these things are going to last. These things are going to stand strong. The wood and the hay, they're going to deteriorate over time. And then there are any number of, uh, of elemental issues with building with wood and hay, whether we want to talk about termites, whether we want to talk about fires, whether we want to talk about wind and whatever the case may be. And in this case, what he is, is saying is that what, remember that regardless of what you're building with, one day God is going to judge what you have built. He's talking to believers here. Not for whether you go to heaven or hell. That's laid in the foundation. But what about rewards and loss? There's coming a day where you will stand before God. And the Bible says that every man will stand before God and be judged by his works. There's going to be two different sets here. The first is going to be the book of life. That book will be opened. Anyone that's in name is written in the book of life because they've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior will enter into heaven. And we say, okay, good. If I get into heaven, that's enough for me. It shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. Because the Bible says, then the books were opened. And these are the books of our works. And every man is judged out of those things that he does in this life. Quite literally, every day, every decision is an investment into an eternity. And so Paul says that there's coming a day when God will try our works by fire. And the quality of the things we have done in this life will be revealed by that fire. So if you think about the, the particular materials that he's described. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Only one of those, or only one subset of those, the metals, the precious metals and rocks, oh, that's the only subset that's going to make it through the fire, right? The wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn right up. And so if you think of, of the day of God's judgment as a fire, which is kind of how the Bible regularly describes it, God's fire, the fire of God's judgment, is His holiness, His, his righteousness is going to fall upon the, ta the, 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 the building or the the creation of what we've done with our lives, of literally everything that our lives have been. And the only thing that's going to last for eternity are the things we did for Christ, are the things that we did in Christ. Not necessarily all for Christ, but in Christ, right? Uh, things that were right, things that were right in God's eyes, things that, that were not sinful, things that were not disobedient. And those are the things that are going to last for eternity. Those are the things that are going to continue on beyond this life. And so this is, the, this is the idea. This is the warning. So Paul says, if any man's work abide which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. So if, if, if the fire of God's judgment falls, and following that judgment, there's anything left, everything that is left is a reward. It's, it's, it's what God has said, this is profitable. This is, this is something I'm going to reward you for. And then anything that is burned up will be a loss, a waste of time. Something that, that was what it was on the earth, but now that's done. Now we have eternity to look forward to. And the things that you did there are burned up. They, they're not going to benefit you at all for eternity. And we need to, to, to attempt in our hearts to assume this mindset why does biblical decision-making matter? Why should I filter my decisions through the Bible? Well, because if I, if I think about things as they truly exist, and for, the, for, for we who are in Christ, what that means, if I think about things for, as they truly exist, 
this life is a blip on the radar of eternity, right? You get 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and then you've got an entire eternity left after that, right? I mean, a very short amount of time on this earth. Do I please myself, being contrary to the word of God for those years, at the expense of rewards for eternity, or do I set aside what might be what I want in this life in deference to eternal riches, in deference to the eternity that is to come. And we make these decisions all the time, right? I can either buy stuff today or I can put that money in the bank or in a market and, it can, and it can, it can, I can invest it, right? And then it can work for me. That money starts to work for me. The idea is, do I do immediate gratification or long-term stability? That's, that's what we're talking about here. Are, am I going to sin, immediate gratification, or am I going to invest in eternity? Something that's going to pay me back dividends for the rest of what's not time, right? <laughs> for the rest of beyond time. And that's the mindset that we are supposed to have. Well, what are these rewards? We don't know. And that's fascinating to me. Jesus gives the parable of the talents and the, and the servants, right? The, 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 each servant was given, one was given ten talents, one was given five talents, one was given one talent. The man with ten doubled what he had. The man with five doubled what he had. The man with one buried in the ground. The master comes back a, after receiving his kingdom and he honors the man with that, that, that doubled his, his money from ten to twenty. And, and he says that I'll give you twenty cities. And then the man with five, and that, that man doubled it, and, and, and the master says, I'm going to give you ten cities because you, had, you, you, you earned ten talents. You doubled your money. And then the man that buried his talent in the ground, the master says that you're a wicked and unprofitable servant because you took what I gave you and you did absolutely nothing with it. I'm taking that away from you and I'm giving it to the man that has ten talents. And the idea being there that, that you are not getting any reward because you were not profitable in the time that I was gone. Sir? I've heard that a bunch of times. Yep. Where, where exactly is that in the Bible? Give me just a moment, I'll find it. I'm dealing with my younger son who's now working as hard as he should be in certain areas of his life. So that's how I always equate it to. And actually, that's where the concept of us having talents comes from. It came from that biblical ideal of the talents. And the talent then was not like a capacity. It was a, a weight of, it was a, weight, it was a me- measurement of money, right? It was a weight of gold. But then that idea of having talents actually carried over into the idea of I have talent, right? These are my abilities. So people would say, are you investing your talents properly? That's actually where that came from. I've always told my kids that that's how you, you know, that's essentially God gives you everybody so many different gifts. Right? Yep. Absolutely. And um, so Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 to 30 is the parable of the talents. And, and that's true. Uh, and, and, and be sure that when you emphasize this, uh, don't just emphasize it on the physical level. One of the dangers that, that parents can run into is that we try to take spiritual biblical lessons and manipulate them to simply motivate our children physically. In other words, uh, so a lot of people believe that religion was created simply to manipulate people into moral behaviors for the sake of control, right? 
And if I hold something over their heads and say, the reason why you're not doing good enough, in look at what Jesus said about talents, now do better in math. Okay, yes, granted, God has given you gifts and you need to use them. But that's the deeper perspective, right? The, the, the deeper perspective is not, you need to do better in math or else God is angry at you. It's, do you love God? What has God given you? Are you honoring him with what he's given you? Right? And, and so be, be careful the perspective because what you're, you don't want is for your children to feel like you're, you're attempting to use the Bible to manipulate their actions or behaviors because that is the exact thing that has caused nearly two-thirds of the church today, or two-thirds of this generation to walk away from the church because they feel like religion has done very little for them other than seek to manipulate their behaviors and um, manipulate their actions. Uh, the, the deeper essence of that, though, is God has made me a certain way. God has given me certain abilities, and it pleases the Lord for me to use them. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Which means as I'm scrubbing a toilet, there's a way in which I can do it that glorifies God, and there's a way I can do it which does not. What way does not glorify God? I cut corners. I grumble and complain the whole time. I backbite the person, my authority, who told me the whole time. All of that is what displeases God. What does please God? I do my best. I honor my authority. I don't seek to cut corners. I do that job as if the Lord is standing over me watching because he is. And, and if I have the right mindset, even cleaning a toilet can, can, can earn me reward in heaven. And that's a great thing. And that's what we, we want to emphasize. So, so I, I, gave, I give that parable to say there's very little in the Bible that tells us exactly what these rewards are. The Bible talks about crowns that the Lord will give us. The Bible talks about this, this parable of the cities that the Lord will give to these or that the, the, the ruler gave to these servants. But we really don't know what the rewards are. But heaven, the Bible says, I hath not seen, neither hath ear heard, neither hath come into the heart of man what God hath prepared for them that love him. Which means whatever these rewards are, they're unfathomably worth it. I can't tell you what they are. I can't tell you what that means. All I can tell you is that to whatever degree, to whatever degree you are willing to see the things that you do on this earth as mattering for the life to come, it, it will be worth it. And one day in eternity you will look back and you will say, the only thing I regret is that I didn't believe that enough. And I didn't believe enough that the things I do on this life matter for eternity and live this life in a matter that reflects eternity. I guarantee you that's the only thing. If there's going to be any dissatisfaction in heaven at all, it will simply be that, that we didn't do enough. Because we're going to say all of our, we were, we were tricked and manipulated and confused into thinking that anything on that, on that earth mattered that did not reflect into eternity. Because really, uh, the rewards will be, will, will, will be worth it. Good question. Any other questions or thoughts on this? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've seen you know, my father-in-law, he had started out working in the line of tenor and come up 
so on. It was you just took advantage, you know, mm -hmm. of the class and so on throughout. But putting he was putting his own ideas in in he was feeling his his kid wasn't successful because he wasn't following his way. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, right. Well, sure, and, and there's that physical idea to it, but it is important, and this is what I was just mentioning, that we transition this to the spiritual, right? It's one thing to say I'm not maximizing my potential as a human, but that what, what, we, are, what we are really, and th this will come up in our third point, but what we are really saying in here is, are you maximizing your potential as a child of God? Are you maximizing your spiritual potential and that's what biblical decision-making is about. And that brings us to this third point. Not every eternally good decision is a temporally good decision. Not every decision that is good for eternity is one that I would look at materially, physically, and say, yeah, that's, that's good. Right? If, if, if God says, give a bunch of money to someone, and your buddies are like, you're really going to give that much money away, Right? It, it's 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 God's what God is asking you versus what what's temporally good for you, right? Keep that money, do something, yeah, yeah, use that money for yourself. And there's a conflict between what is spiritually best and what is temporally, materially, physically best. Not every eternally good decision is a temporally good decision. And as you step into biblical decision making, you need to be ready to say. Even if this doesn't make sense from a physical, material perspective, if it is right from a biblical perspective, I need to be willing to do it. Even if someone's going to look at me and say, hey, you're, you're, you're losing out here. You know, I, I have a, a, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I have a bachelor's degree in computer science, software engineering. And I'm a, I'm a pretty smart guy. Uh, I, and yet I'm pastoring a church of... 50 people on a good Sunday morning in Buffalo, Minnesota for very, very little money compared to what I could be making otherwise. That's not a temporally good decision. That's not a materially good decision. That's not a physically good decision that I'm making there. But it's an eternally good decision. And I had to make a choice at some point. What am I going to choose? Am I going to choose what's eternally good and what God wants of me, or am I going to choose what is temporally, physically, materially good? And we have to make these choices, and not every choice is going to be able to satisfy both of those at the same time. Sometimes it does. 
Sometimes you can make the choice for the Lord, and it's a win-win, right? It's good for you, it's good for your family, it's good for the Lord, it's good, for, it's good biblically. And uh, th there is the contingency of the church that says this is always going to happen. It's kind of the health and wealth preaching type people, right? That if you do it God's way, then you're going to become he healthy and wealthy and wise every single time. And so every eternally good choice is a temporally good choice. That's not true. Not every choice you make for the Lord is going to redound to your increasing bank account or your increasing happiness on this earth or your increasing health and wellness. Sometimes the choices we have to make that are most eternally beneficial are ones that are going to be hard on us from a physical point of view. But we say there's a decision between the rewards of heaven and the rewards of this life and I simply have to make it. So I give you here as an example another one from 1 Corinthians. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The, the gospel is an interesting thing, right? You have those people that say, I just want everything to be intellectually stimulating. And so you've got that crowd. And then you've got the crowd uh, that, that uh, says, uh, like, uh, he says here, the Jews, the Jews require a sign. The Jews rejected Jesus because he wasn't what they expected. The Greeks rejected Jesus because of the simplicity of the faith. You're, you mean you're just telling me that this guy died on the cross for our sins and, and he was buried and he rose again and if I believe that, then that's it? Uh, and that, that's not very uh, elegant, in, in one way as, as a, a concept of redemption. And so Paul says this, this con the gospel is foolishness to the world. To some in the world it's a stumbling block, right? It's, it's, it's something that is offensive. To others it's just foolishness. Uh, you know, how, th there is no sitcom, there is no comedy that does not paint Christians as idiots, right? As people that are anti-science, anti-this, anti-that, right? Anti-everything. Anti-everything that's rational. Anti-everything that's reasonable. We are absolutely irrational because of that silly thing that we have called faith. Where we actually believe in that, in, in, in that, that, that Santa Claus in the sky who's going to do things for us. That we're, we're, those, we're, we're those irrational people. We're those people that, that, that uh, um, deny what is obvious and what is true. And so that's what the world sees us as. And yet the solution is not to try to take the gospel and to make it palatable to them. The solution is to keep preaching Christ and let God do the work. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says that the gospel is foolishness to the world, but God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. All of the attempts of the world to earn their own salvation through all of the elaborate schemes of religions or, or, or casting religion aside into that, that, that religion of secular humanism or whatever it might be, and they say we, we're doing this because of all those foolish people that believe in this foolish God 
who foolishly sent someone to die and as, as, as if that's going to do anything for these people. And that is what they see us as. But Paul says, unto those who have accepted Christ, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We see it. And that doesn't make us special, except for the fact that we've received the grace of God. Therefore, you understand that Jesus Christ and the gospel is not foolishness, but it's the power of God unto salvation. It is the wisdom of God that that this is the very root of God's wisdom, that he, he, he has this system whereby everyone has a level playing field. The rich and the poor, the bond and the free, the male and the female, every ethnicity, every nationality, they're all on the same level playing field, which is we're all sinners. And then there's one perfect man who is the God-man who died on the cross so that every person has the opportunity to be saved. No man would ever conjure that up. There's too many bigotous, prejudiced, discriminating people. Every other system, every other religious system says, because of who I am, I'm something more than others. Therefore, I am in and they are not. But Christ has this, the gospel is this system of wisdom. The world can't understand that. The world can't understand the wisdom of a man who gives up temporal pleasures, physical advantages for eternal good. But, but, but we can if we're in Christ. So someone would look at someone who gives up temporal pleasures for eternal riches and say, there's wisdom in that. I think of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, um, uh, well-known in the 50s, they went to a, a group of Indians called the Aka Indians down in South America. And he and a, another man named Nate Saint, and there were a couple others, and they were attempting to reach out to this tribe and this tribe was known as the most violent tribe in the world. Uh, their, their, the life expectancy in their tribe was somewhere around 28 to 31. Like, th- there were no elderly people in this tribe. They all killed each other. If you lived into your 30s, you were an old man, not because of disease and, and of filth, but because of you would be killed by someone in the tribe. It was just this murderous, cannibalistic, evil tribe of people. So uh, Jim Elliott is writing in his journal... And uh, he writes in his journal, and then they go out there to try to make contact with these Akas, and they're all killed. And uh, there's, there's a movie called, I think, Point of the Spear, Tip of the Spear about it. Um, the, the, the book, Tip of the Spear, Point of the Spear, I think it's Tip of the Spear, is written by the son of Nate Saint, one of the men that was killed on that day. And here's what happened. What happened is these Aka Indians killed these people, and, and for, for any number of reasons, uh, which are explained in the book. As it turns out, though, the wives, the widows of all of these men stayed there. Other missionaries came down, and they ended up getting, bringing the gospel to that tribe, and the tribe accepted Christ. There was a, a, a final, finally a generation that lived to be old people, and Nate Saint's son was actually raised by the man that killed his father. And you sit there and you say, and he didn't know that. He didn't know that until he was already an adult. He just knew that this man's like my father, Turns out this man is the man that killed his father and, and, and uh, killed, killed the men on that day. So as, as this got around in the United States in the 50s and, and uh, this was a big deal, one of the things that came to light was Jim Elliott's journal. And one of the things he wrote in the journal was this. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's not foolish. 
It's not foolish for me to give up the things of this life in order to gain eternal riches. It's foolishness from the perspective of the one who does not understand that there's coming a day when there will be judgment and, and, and that the things in this life matter. It's foolishness to them, of course. But to those who are in Christ, to those who actually know by faith that there's an eternity, it makes perfect sense to give up anything in this life if I can have riches in the life to come. Because that life is forever, and this life is just a few years. And so, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the men on that day, uh, they yielded their lives. And you'd say, wow, what, what foolishness. There's a uh, young man that just a couple weeks ago uh, on the island off of India. Did you read about that? Young missionary, uh, young man, and, and, and the way he went about it was a little bit less than wise. Um, but, you know, he, he went to this... This island where, where there was this tribe that people were, you, you're not allowed to go there. And he wanted to bring the gospel. So he tries to, to go there and to bring the gospel. They kill him. They, find, they, they, they saw him being buried on the, on the beach. And, and this is a young man who at least had this mindset that said, my life is, is their lives for eternity are worth more than my life temporally. He is, yes, sir. Yep. They were prepared with guns and everything else and watchful and so on. But when they had their backs turned after their glasses or so, that's when they got killed. But they had, those people had to have some contact. This guy, oh, sure they had, yep. The guy that went over to India and the second Louise Island, whatever that one was, totally different because those people were, they were like the American Indians. You know? I mean, this, it, to me, I see a guy that goes in there for his own glory. I know that I know that I've wanted and thought about going out and it's when when the Christ will return when the message has reached everybody on earth. But uh, this guy I think in my impression he went for himself because he didn't take any into his concern the people that he was going there. They're like the American Indians he killed off most of it, all the stuff he brought over. It's not just the saw and smallpox and the other things that we talk about saw his back yeah they'd had minimal contact and 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 the the people down in South America um, had been engaging them for months by dropping things out of their plane dropping gifts trying to show them goodwill good faith and such and that's why I say this young man I, I, I you know we certainly can't judge the young man's motives whether he was there for his own glory or not uh, th- there doesn't seem to be anything in his writings that would I- imply that however that being said uh, I, I would agree that the way that he went about it was uh, perhaps a little bit reckless possibly because of the uniqueness of the situation where it was actually illegal to go over there it was illegal to engage those people and he was attempting to do it anyway. Um, but, but one way or another, the, the, the point, right, the point is that not every eternally decision is temporally beneficial or temporally good. So we continue here um, in, in the text, verse 26, uh, verse 25, we'll say, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the uh, things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God tends to use weakness. And we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, We talked about this when we were talking about the spiritual realm. And uh, even last time we were together, we talked about this concept that uh, um, biblical leadership, that that biblical leadership, true courage, is not necessarily the man that, that is able to, you know, beat up the other guy in the bar. That's, and, and, and is going to stand up to him and, and, and make him back down. That's what makes you feel tough. But is there not true courage to the man who reads the Bible, who reads what the Word of God has to say, and who makes the hard decisions for Christ? Is there not true courage in the man that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and, and leads his family as unto the Lord, even though people aren't going to understand that? The, the, the true courage of making the hard decisions for Christ. Is there no true courage there? And, and to the world, that's weakness. To the world, that's foolishness. And they say, he's weak, he's foolish. But God says, this is a man of honor. This is a man who I can bless. The world says, what, what foolishness to throw your life away. Uh, another missionary, if you've never read about David Brainerd, I'd encourage you, if you've never read about David Brainerd, write his name down and look him up. David Brainerd. Here's a man who was from a very wealthy family, David Brainerd. And he went to, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Harvard or Yale, to one of those schools way back in the day. And um, he just set the place on fire for the Lord. And he was, he, he was like a meteor shooting through uh, the university. And he was, he was making a difference and an impact. And um, he was... He, he, he was a man of distinction, and he, he was heir to this huge wealth and fortune with which he could have done amazing things for the Lord, right? And you think of that. Well, he felt the calling to go be a missionary. And so I believe it was Egypt that he went to to, to to do language studies, and there he died, and he died at a very young age. And people say, well, what a waste. What a waste. No waste. You get up and you go and you serve the Lord and you do what God has asked you to do for eternity. There's no waste there. But the world looks at that and they say waste. Loss. We look at that and we say reward. Blessing. Honor. You look at the man who's making the hard decisions for Christ and the world says he's a pushover. He, he, he's allowing this religion to dictate his actions. Why won't he be a man and just say Whatever. It's not easy to forgive. It's not easy to submit yourself to the authorities that are under you. Those aren't manly things. Hold a grudge. Don't don't submit. Be your own man. Well, you know what? That's not what the Bible calls strength. That's not what the Bible calls courage. Now, there's a place for that. I'm not saying there's never a place for that. But what I'm saying is, Paul tells us here that God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. This is why when he says in verse 26, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. In some way, this this very group is a bit of a miracle. Because it is not common for men of tremendous capacity in this world to be willing to see that they have the weakness of their sin and they need Christ. That's not necessarily a common thing. Not many of the mighty 
and the noble and the wise are called because they, they have things in this life. And so it's harder for them to be able to yield the temporal for the eternal. And to that end, it's harder for them to say, I'm going to take up my cross and follow Christ. Because in doing... Have, have, did, did I miss my temporal calling? <laughs> and and th- this is the idea here. Verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. See, the thing of it is this. When, when I am doing my job right for Christ... I'm not getting the glory. Christ is getting the glory and I'm fading into the background. That's hard for people of wisdom and strength and might and honor, right? And the Bible says that God has created the entire system of the gospel and of the word of God and serving of God is meant to lower man and elevate God. It's meant to, he must increase and I must decrease. And not only is that hard for for any individual man, but it's hard for the world to look at the church. Friedrich Nietzsche saw Christians, Friedrich Nietzsche the philosopher, right, one of the ones that everyone reads in college and whatnot. He, He saw Christians as the absolute worst that the world had to offer because of this thing within them called mercy. That they had mercy, and so they, in the, in mercy, they allowed the weak to remain. They didn't stomp the weak down and destroy them and, and, and pile up their dead bodies to get, to get higher. He talked about the will to power. That everything in life is about power and power relationships. That's actually what communism and socialism are about. The, 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 the progressive agenda sees everything today about power relationships. Why? Because of this Friedrich Nietzschean communistic idea that everything is about power. And that power is, is, is the ultimate Good, the ultimate goal. And Friedrich Nietzsche says the thing that's holding society back from power are these Christians and their antiquated ideas of mercy. These Christians are weak. They're not willing to do what it takes to propel mankind into the future. And actually it was Hitler that read that and said, I'll do what it takes. And so Hitler reads Darwinian evolution, the idea of survival of the fittest, and Friedrich Nietzsche, the idea of the will to power, and he says, so we, we propel the future on the, on the dead bodies of the weak. We propel the future on the dead bodies of those who, we are, who are holding us back. And to that end, Friedrich Nietzsche actually wished, he wrote a book called Antichrist. He says he wished he was the Antichrist because... Christians are the scourge of society. That is the, that, that's the extreme end of the world's philosophy as it relates to Christianity. They see Christianity as weak, as foolish, because we do things like care for widows and orphans instead of just saying, look, we've got our own things to deal with. You go do whatever you're going to do. Because we, are, because we are willing to give of ourselves to others without asking in return because we are willing to forgive turn the other cheek if a man asks you for your coat you give him your cloak also and these things are weakness and these things are you being a pushover and these things are you being you being taken advantage of and God says this is you being obedient and the world says that, uh, that just makes you a bunch of idiots and God says that makes you a man of honor 
and of courage and a man of distinction. And so we have decisions to make sometimes. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 20. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and again the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. So Paul says, if you really want to be wise before God, then become foolish to the world, because the world sees Christianity as foolishness. And choose God's way, not man's way. Questions or thoughts on that? So this is the foundation of biblical decision making. These three points. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. The things we do in this life do matter for the life that is to come. And then finally, not every eternally good decision is a temporally good decision. Sometimes you are going to have to decide between temporal, material, physical advantage and eternal, and, and eternal advantage, eternal riches. And that leads us to the steps of biblical decision making. Step number one, no matter how uncomfortable, what does the Bible say about what you're thinking about? No matter how uncomfortable it is, what does the Bible say? And this is why it's important to know your Bible, because you can't just say, well, I don't know, so I'm off the hook, right? Because that's not how it works. It's not, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> ignorance is bliss in that you don't know it, but there's coming a day where you'll stand before God and ignorance will not be an excuse. Ah. Oh. Man, isn't that a bummer? (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice? Your kids try this all the time or try this all the time, right? The idea of if if dad is convinced that I didn't know what he told me, even though I looked him in the eye and said, yes, sir, when he said that, and then later up I come up and say, but I didn't hear you, right? If I can convince dad that I didn't know, then I'm off the hook. Or if I cannot know, right? If I can literally not, never listen, so that I just never know what my parents say, then I'm off the hook. If you're a good parent, they're not off the hook. They should not be off the hook. Because just because you weren't listening, or you chose not to listen, doesn't let you off the hook. Now, if you did not actually hear me, that's one thing. But if you chose not to listen or not to remember, that's your problem, not mine. You're on the hook. No matter how uncomfortable, what does the Bible say? So, you you search the Bible, and the Bible becomes, and both, step one and two is kind of this, but I'll introduce the concept to you now. The, think of the Bible like a filter. That every thought, every decision, every motive, every action, as you're deciding, is this good or not? The first thing you do is you pour that through the Word of God. And does it come out clean on the other side? I want to go to this place. Pour it through the principles of the Word of God. Does it come out clean? I want to say that word. Pour it through the principles of God. Does it come out clean? I want to pursue that venture, pursue that opportunity. Pour it through the filter of the word of God. Does it come out clean? That's a really good first step. If it comes out clean on the other side, whether that means it's, it's, it doesn't offend anything wrong uh, or whether that means it actually confirms something right. In other words, should, should I buy that house? Well, when I say should I buy that house, there's no... Should I buy a house filter in the Word of God, right? Um, the, the, the foolish man built his house upon a rock, uh, on, on the sand, and the wise man built his house upon the rock. That's about all we get, and that's not talking about actually building houses, right? So we don't get anything about building houses in the Bible, but what do we get? We get, uh, pr- uh, we get warnings about debt. 
we get warnings about materialism and um, uh, um, go, going beyond that which we need. Having food and raiment, Jesus said, let us therewith be content. So we have principles of contentment. So the question then becomes, as I'm pursuing this, is it for my... I mean, it, what, 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 what are my goals? What is my heart in pursuing this? Uh, am I going to be falling into crippling debt or can I afford this? All of those decisions can be filtered through the Word of God. And if all of those come out clean, my heart is right, God has opened the doors, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, going beyond the, the means that I have, I'm being a good steward of my money, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing these, these, these things that the Word of God speaks of and, and it doesn't offend any of them, okay, it filtered through the Word of God. But no matter how uncomfortable, what does the Bible say? I just uh, met a guy in the jail today. I hadn't seen him since April. He got out of jail this last April. When he'd gotten out of jail in April, I'd been working with him for over a year since, uh, I'd been working with him since um, um, uh, February of 2017. February of 2017. So he got out in April of this year, 2018. So I'd been working with him for over a year. And I told him, I said, Bob, his name's not really Bob, but I said, Bob, this is what you need to do. You need to not ever go back to that woman that you were with. You need to stay away from other women because you are not in a state of mind to handle that. You need to get into church. You need to get a job. You need to be among the stability of, of the stable portion of your family. There's an unstable portion of his family who are alcoholics and drug addicts. And then there's a stable portion who are family people and who are, who are, who are doing right. You need to do that and, and get yourself right. Well, now he has decisions to make. And he gets out, and uh, um, you know, spoiler alert, he's back in jail, right? So um, he gets out, and he does everything opposite of what I told him to do. Now, what I told him to do wasn't anything. It was just, it was, it was basic biblical wisdom, right? Don't go living with a girl that's not your wife. Don't, don't um, put yourself around sinners, right? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So don't go to where people are obviously naturally doing wrong and then be around them because this is what I tell my people at church all the time. When the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If I take a clean rag and I throw it into a pile of dirty rags and I walk away and I come back the next day, you will not find a pile of clean rags there. You will find a pile of dirty rags and the rag that was clean is now dirty too. When the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. And this is biblical wisdom. This is Psalm 1. This is the, 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 this is, so what should he have done? He takes his, his decisions and he filters them through the word of God. That's our step number one. It, it's not fun. It's not comfortable. It doesn't make sense. It's not what I want. It's not what other people want of me. No matter how uncomfortable it is, what does the Bible say? 95% of people's problems would be solved overnight if they did step one. 5% is the rest of this stuff. 95% is, what does the Bible say? Am I willing to obey it? Step number two. Questions about step number one before we go to step number two. Yes, sir. Um, it, it's it's not it's it's a it's a concept you can draw from the Bible where the Bible says um, uh, I believe it was in that passage 
the First Corinthians 10 passage maybe, where, where the Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. Um, let me see if I can find it just briefly. I can always, should probably just look it up on my phone. That's the fence. We're talking about it if we get if we can get there tonight. <laughs> Let me. Yeah, that would have been in another class. Probably two years ago, um, but it's coming up again tonight. So, Second uh, Corinthians six seventeen. Um, so. Uh, and, and then the verses surrounding it, where Paul is saying that we need to separate ourselves from the unclean parts of this world. And First um, John talks about it too. There's actually a good portion of Scripture that speaks about separating ourselves from the unbeliever. Now, not the idea of, oh, you're an unbeliever, I'm not going to talk with you. Because the Bible says, and this is in um, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I wrote unto you not to keep com- company with fornicators. He said, yet not altogether fornicators of this world, or else you'd have to come out of the world. But I wrote unto you, saying that if there is someone that claims to be a believer, but is living in sexual sin, that you don't go near them, that you stay away from them. And the principle there is that if I had to stay away from sin, in, in, in the, 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 the sense of I don't socialize with sinners... Well, then I can't win the world to Christ because I'm not going to talk to the world, right? We're going to lock ourselves in our churches because, because anybody we talk to is, is a sinner, right? Anyone we talk to is an unbeliever. We have to literally come out of the world. We can't do that and win the world at the same time, right? But just because I, I, I need to be around the world doesn't mean I have to be a part of what they're doing. I can be around my unbelieving coworkers, friends, acquaintances, and family without getting involved in their sin. And if I can't, then I shouldn't be around them until I can. Because when the dirty's with the clean, the dirty's not going to get cleaner, the clean's going to get dirtier. Okay, and then the second one, this comes back to our very first class here. Um, Step two, beyond the letter of the commandment, what does the spirit of the commandment say? What are the implications, right? And we talked about interpreting the Bible and and implications and the idea that we're not just talking about the letter of the law like we we talked about Ephesians 5.18, right? And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit. The letter of that commandment is don't get drunk on wine. But the spirit of the commandment is don't allow any substance into your life that is going to overcome your capacity to be led by the Spirit of God. So if there is a substance that you're allowing into your life that is overriding your ability to be driven by the Spirit of God, then, you are, then, then you're not where you are supposed to be, whether that's wine or whether that's some other alcohol or liquor or whether that's a, a, a drug, whether legal or illegal. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, does the Spirit of God have the capacity to rule in me or have I allowed, a, have I allowed something into my my body that is, that is altering my state of mind so that the Spirit of God does not have the ability to do what He's supposed to do, right? So what is the spirit of the commandment? As you filter it through the Word of God, don't just filter it through the thou shalt and thou shalt not, right? The, filter it through the 
principles of God's Word. And this is where teaching comes in in particular. This is where having someone to help you understand the principles of the Word of God, a good church, uh, um, uh, uh, a, a mentor, and all of those things are, are important to help uh, give you some perspective on those things. And as I just said, right here at the middle of this page, step one and two become the filter through which all of the other steps flow. If you can get through steps one and two, you're going to be in pretty good shape as, as a general rule. Now, there's more to it. There's some Christians that just live in steps one and two, and they can still be very happy, but they don't actually reap the fullest gold mine of contentment that comes from the provisions that God has made for us to know his will. Questions about one and two? Okay, step number three. And uh, those of you that have talked to, to Greg in any spiritual capacity, he's really likes this one. Right, right? You search the mind of the Spirit, listening to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is never going to contradict the Word of God because the, the Spirit and the Word are one. So you never have to worry about the Spirit of God telling you something that, that contradicts the Word of God. So if you, if you feel like the Spirit of God, I, I have people in the jail all the time, God told me, that I'm supposed to be sleeping with this woman even though she's married and I'm married. But God gave me peace. No, God did not. God did not. No, he didn't. No, he did not. I can go to chapter and verse and show you he did not give you peace. Satan may have given you peace. Your own deceitful heart may have given you peace. But it was not God. Because God, the Spirit of God, never works in contradiction to the Word of God. Ever. So that's why the, the Word of God is the filter. Right? If you're hearing something... Or if you're compelled to do something and, and you feel like it's God, but it doesn't pass the test of the Word of God, it's not God. Just, it's not God. Put it out of your mind. Put it out of your intent. It's not God. But then you search the mind of the Spirit. Everybody who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says the Spirit of God is inside of you, indwelling you, and He communicates with you. I'm not talking about that you're hearing voices in your head audibly, right? I, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, you know, you and this voice have a uh, first name basis and, and you know, you're, you're walking around the street mumbling and th th that, that's, that's not normal. But the idea that the Spirit of God communicates to you, and this is in different ways. As Greg talks about it, uh, he tends to see, as we pray and such, he tends to see things in, in kind of a visual aspect. He sees pictures. Um, I tend to be driven by peace or lack of peace. Uh, I'm, I, one, of, one of the spiritual gifts the Lord has given me is discernment, and so there's a capacity to really feel tremendously at peace or not at peace. Even when a decision seems right, if I don't have peace about it, I know that the Spirit of God is, is, is saying something to me. Um, or he'll, uh, w one time, uh, Greg was just on my mind. And, and I couldn't get him off my mind, so I was just praying for him, and I was praying for him, and I was praying for him, and I was praying for him. And I just texted him and said, hey, Greg, just want to let you know I'm praying for you and your family. And he, he texted back, and he said, you know, the Spirit of God is powerful. I'm driving my family to the hospital right now, and he gave me the situation. And here it is that the Spirit of God is laying him on my heart, putting him into my mind to pray for him because he's going through a hard time, and, 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 and he needs my prayers at that time, right? So... Search the mind of the Spirit of God in faith. You've got to learn to listen. And, and this can become, and I want you to be careful with this, because this can become a dangerous kind of pagan thing if you're not filtering the listening through the Word of God. Because the idea of learning to listen, well, you know what? Demons commune with men too. We talked about that in the spirit realm stuff, right? So if you're just, if, if you're doing yoga, right, and you're emptying your mind, what will fill it will probably not be the Spirit of God. 
Meditation in the biblical sense is not empty your mind. Meditation in the biblical sense is fill your mind with, with, with the word of God. Fill your mind with Christ. And then he will speak to you through his word, through his spirit. Don't empty your mind. Emptying your mind is just asking for something dangerous to fill it. That's a Near Eastern mystic pagan idea. Empty your mind, that yoga idea. Biblical meditation. Fill your mind with Christ. And by filling your mind with Christ, you, you, you learn these things. So, for known quantities, should I do this or should I, do, should I not do this? Should I buy the house or should I not buy the house? Ask directly. Lord, should I do this? Should I not do this? Seek his peace. Uh, of course, you go through all the biblical steps, right? The Bible says that there's safety in counsel. So, so counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Ask your dad. Ask your brother. Ask your, your, your friend. Ask your, your financial advisor. Ask your mentor. Ask someone. Get advice. See if they have any red flags. Uh, filter through the word of God. And then look for, the, look for the leading of the spirit of God. How does the spirit of God talk to you? Have you learned to listen to him? Have you learned to listen to the spirit of God when he's talking? If not, this is something that takes time to cultivate. And that's something that, you know, that, again, Greg is really big on this. When he, when he learned to listen, when I learned to listen, um, it was, it's, it's a life-changing thing because now you have an advocate in the spirit realm that is directly helping you, even with the decisions that aren't, thou shalt not kill. Yeah, that one, I, I got that one, right? Thou shalt not kill, I get it. The Bible says it. I, I, can, I can learn that one. I've got that one down pretty easy. Um, but... But some of these other decisions, I need the Spirit of God. For, for known quantities, my prayers are seeking directly the help of the Spirit of God. For unknown quantities, what should I do? What should I do? I don't even know what to ask for. I don't even know what to do. So-and-so is sick. So-and-so is dying. Um, uh, I, so-and-so did die, and I'm an emotional wreck. What do I do with these uh, what do I do with these emotions? Uh, uh, someone hurt me. Someone hurt my family. Someone hurt my loved ones. And I'm angry. What do I do with these things? Uh, there's elements of the word of God, but then there's unknown qualities. God, I just don't even know what to do. So for known qualities, just ask. Get in the habit of asking God for stuff. The Bible says that God delights in giving things to his children. Now, there are, there are, uh, um, there are rules to that. We've talked about prayer, right? You have to ask in faith. You don't ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust and such, but ask him. For unknown quantities, ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, knock. Ask and it shall be given you, Matthew 7. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened in you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And to him that seeketh, uh, yeah, uh, it, uh, find, and, and he that seeketh findeth, excuse me. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened unto him. So that's that process of just be persistent in prayer, seeking the Lord and letting him then do the work in you to bring about the circumstances whereby you have that wisdom. Um, I have given you a lot of resources on prayer and we're doing okay on time. So I have given you a lot of resources on prayer. Uh, the last thing that I tell you there, and we'll come back to this, beware of the permissive will of God. We'll, we'll talk about that more in a moment. So the first resource I've given you on prayer, this is kind of, a, a, kind of a pictorial representation of a lot of how prayer works. And I give you several passages of scripture if you want to do some case studies on prayer. 
I particularly recommend Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13 and John chapter 17 as tremendous case studies on prayer. So how does God communicate to man? God communicates to man through special revelation and through general revelation. General revelation is the general knowledge that's seen by all men. Creation, conscience, the fact that there is morality, that there is such thing as good and bad, that it really does matter in this society whether you love your neighbor or kill your neighbor, right? They're, they're, they're not morally equivalent and everyone knows it because the image of God is in man and because there's some general knowledge of morality. But then there's special revelation and special revelation is the word of God and the spirit of God. And particularly the word of God as the spirit of God teaches us what the word of God means. So spe special revelation is knowledge given by God to man and it's not attainable in any other way but then to be given to you directly by God. General revelation, all men can see it. All men can see creation and know that there's a God. All men can see the law of God written on their heart. Yeah, Greg? So you were talking about listening to God. Yes. Also seeing it, wouldn't you say that would be also something that we have to practice and, and learn? Like, for instance, a non-believer, here's, here's a scenario. Last summer, everybody knows how you fish. It's like they kids fishing all the time. It's a father, son, they never fished before. They see all the pictures. Like, please take us. Mm. So I was running late for whatever reason. I say the quick prayer, God, give me the boat launch, to launch the boat, type of thing. And I made every single light. Hmm. Everyone, all the way there. And then I get to the ramp, and there's one spot left hmm. for me to park my car. Right? Park it, get there just in time. We have a great, great day. So that, to me, I, if I believe in God, mm -hmm. I can see it. Yep. When it happens, right? So mm -hmm. not only listening, you know, being conditioned to listen, but also being conditioned to see it when things are going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking And looking for answers. One of the, the things that that we do in prayer sometimes is that we kind of ex we kind of have a, a way that we expect God's going to answer when we pray, and He actually does answer, but not in the way we expect, and so we just don't see it. And then we say, "Well, God mess messed up on that one." Well, no, He answered the prayer. You were just looking for it in all the wrong places. Uh, you were just looking for it in the wrong way, and so you 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 weren't actually praying just for what you wanted. You were praying for the way that you wanted it done. And that, that was not the way God answered. So yes, not just learning to listen, but learning to see as well. Absolutely. And then learning to be prompted by the Lord. So the idea, like I said, I'm prompted by the Lord to pray for Greg. And then it turns out that he was in need of me at that time. I could have just said, hmm, I wonder why Greg's on my mind and moved on with my day. But learning to say no, when somebody comes to my mind, there's a reason. God is putting him there. I need to call him. I need to pray for him. There's a reason why God is putting that person on my mind. I haven't thought of that person in months or years, and here he is on my mind. Why? Is it really just random? I mean, is, is that what it is? It's just a random synapse firing my brain? Or is it that God has something for me there, and we might miss out on a lot of blessings simply because we're not listening. We're not looking. So that's, that's the revelation of God to man. Very good point. Thank you, Greg. Prayer does not inform God of our needs. God knows what we need before we ask. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Prayer does not convince God to give us what we want. Luke 22, verse 42 tells us this. Prayer does not reveal anything to God which He did not already know. Isaiah 40 tells us this. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. Now, God may decide to or not to do something based upon our prayers, but it's not changing anything. It's simply that, that, that 
God w did or did not give you that thing because you asked or did not ask. Uh, I have a particular set of rules that I follow as it relates to my children and treats. And yet there are days where everything would be satisfied for my children to have a treat, but they don't ask, and so I don't even think about it. Whereas another day, my child comes up and out of the blue says, can we have a treat? And I think about it, and I say, why not? You can have a treat. Uh, today's my, my twin daughters. It's their birthday today. They both turned seven today. And uh, I took them, every year we take them to the dollar store to get a balloon. And we've done that for all of our kids since they've all been born. And so I take him to the dollar store to get a balloon, and here we are getting a balloon, and my intent is I'm going to go, I'm going to get this balloon, and that's it. And they uh, find these little, it's, it's a bouquet of candy. It, it's, it's candy, you know, little spiral suckers and whatnot in like this bouquet, and it's a bouquet of candy. And they come up and say, may we have this? Well, I had no intention of coming and getting them candy, but why not? Happy birthday, you can have the bouquet of candy too. They would never have gotten it if they had not been bold enough to ask for it. They could have said, well, dad's probably going to say no, so I'm not going to ask. And then they wouldn't have gotten the candy. But because they asked, they got it. Now, did that change me? No, nothing changed in me. As a matter of fact, right after that, we're walking and they've got their bouquets of candy and they saw something else and said, dad, can we have this? And I said, no more, no. You've, had, you've got enough now, right? Nothing changed in me. I didn't change when I gave them the bouquet. It's simply that their request aligned with my will. And so they're because, and, and when they asked, I was happy to, to give. God, that's God. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer is a chance to conform my heart to God's will. Oftentimes what's happening in prayer is I go to God and I say, God, I really want this. God, help me. Give this to me, God. And then as I'm praying this prayer, this asking, seeking, knocking process, God is actually working in my heart and he's bringing the word of God into it. And I'm, you know what? I may actually be asking for the wrong thing. God, what I really want in this is for your will. I I, I don't just want the thing. I want what you want for me. I want your best for me. And it turns out that then God ends up giving me this thing. And it's far better than anything I could have thought. Because I thought I knew what I wanted. But God actually knew what I needed. But that's a process of the Lord changing my heart through prayer. Prayer does all of these things. What about when we pray for others in God's will but don't receive it? Salvation of souls and such. Remember that when you're praying for someone. Lord, save someone's soul. They're an unbeliever. Well, why isn't, whoops, why isn't God answering that prayer? Well, remember that there's another will involved. God might be doing everything as far as answering your prayer, convicting his heart, convicting his heart, convicting his heart, in a way that maybe he wouldn't have been convicted before, but at the end of the day, that man still has to choose. God's not going to turn him into a robot, right? So remember that as well when it comes to prayer. So praying in God's will. If I know something is God's will, my heart is aligned with the word of God, with the spirit of God, I pray and I ask God for something through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God lifts my petitions in the authority of the Son of God. My petition comes to the Father and the Father grants me the petition of my heart. God gives me the things. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, If I ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And we know that if He hears us, that we will have the petitions that we desire of Him. Why? Because I am asking according to His will, just like my daughter today, right? My daughter says, my daughter says, Dad, can I have this? She asked according to my will, and I said, yes. It was that simple. That's praying in God's will. You know that, that it's God's will, or you are praying, seeking to, to know God's will. It is God's will, and you get it. God, 
would, would, you, would you give us a new car? Our, our old car is getting old, whatever the case may be. Boom. God, God provides the money, whatever the case may be. You got it. God, it was, it was the Lord's will. It aligned. Uh, there was nothing amiss. You weren't doing it for the lust. You had, you had all the right motives, all that. What about praying for God's will? So praying in God's will. I know God's will or I know the general template and I'm asking. That's simple enough. But praying for God's will. This is the ask, seek, and knock idea. I pray. And as I'm praying, God, I want to know your will. I want to know what's best. Praying as Jesus did in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I love Jesus' prayer in the garden because he gets down on his knees and he says, God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, right? I don't want to do this. If there's any other way that you can save the world that doesn't involve me having to bear mankind's sin, let's do that. Let's do that instead. And then he gets up and he goes to his disciples and he finds them sleeping and he says, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And he goes back and he gets down on his knees and he says, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Something has changed in his prayer. It has gone from God, let this happen, to God, let this happen, but I really, what I really want is your will. And then the next time he goes and he, he wakes his disciples up again and he says, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And he goes back and he gets on his knees and he says, God, Father, he called him Father, Father, if this cup cannot pass from me except I drink it, not my will, but thy will be done. He has now aligned himself with the will of the Father. He has brought his petitions and now he has the confidence of knowing that, 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 that the Father's will is this and he is lined with it and then he knows what is the will of the Father and he can do it. And sometimes there's a process of asking, of seeking, of knocking. God, what do you want from me? God, what, 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 what is best? God, uh, how should I raise my children? God, where does the wisdom come from? And, and uh, I was talking to a guy the other day and he, he had prayed for patience. And that's an interesting prayer to pray for. And he was really frustrated because he's like, I'm still an angry man. I'm not being any more patient. And I ask every night that God would take this anger away from me and help me to be patient. And I looked at him and I said, Bob, again, not his name. Bob, what are you expecting? Are you expecting just to wake up one day and all of a sudden you're, 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 you're not angry anymore? If, if I say, God, give me patience... How do you think God's going to go, go about helping me have patience? By bringing a lot of circumstances into my life whereby I have to exercise patience. So that I have to make decisions and learn how to be patient. Right? Patience, it, it, wisdom, yeah, God give me, so, so God give me wisdom, you're praying. God give me wisdom. And, and I don't know, are we hoping that we're just going to wake up one day and have all the answers? But then your dad comes up and says, hey son, I've got, I've got a thought for you on this. And you say, dad, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Well, what if God just sent wisdom? And you missed it. Or, God give me wisdom. And then it's time for church on Sunday. And you know what, I'm not going to go to church today. Well, what if God's wisdom was found in that sermon that you ignored? That you, that you didn't go to? What, what, what it, but see, as I'm aligning with God's will, God give me wisdom. And then I just feel like I need to be in church today. I need to be in church today. I don't know why, but I really need to be in church today. And, and you submit to that. And you get there. And the sermon is like for you, right? Have you ever had one of those? It's for you. Like he's preaching to you. Why? What would have happened if you hadn't gone that day? What would you have lost? What would you have missed out on? This is the process of aligning my heart with God's heart. And all the time you're listening for the Spirit. 
You're being sensitive to the Spirit. As the Spirit of God says, do this, don't do that, go there, don't go there, until such time as God has made it clear what you are to do. And then you do it. And, and, and you, you need to be willing to do it. When our desires aren't God's desires, we ask, we seek, we knock until our heart and desires are conformed to His heart and our desires. If our, our, if our desires do not conform to God's desires, we won't receive them. James 4.3 says that. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may conceive it upon your, uh, uh, yeah, conceive it upon your own lust. Confession. Confession is another type of prayer. And this is a little bit outside of our, our thing. But these are a couple of different types. And let me just explain it because there's no words here. So when my heart is not right with God, if I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm tells me, Psalm 66, 18, the Lord will not hear me if I regard iniquity in my heart. If I am living with unconfessed sin, don't be surprised that your prayers, it's like you're praying to a brick wall. God's not going to hear you if, you're, if you are holding in your heart known sin that you are refusing to, to, to give to Him, that you are refusing to confess. But when I do confess my sin, again, I lift up my confessions through, through the, 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 the Spirit of God intercedes for me, the, the blood of the Son of Jesus Christ gives me authority to come to the Father, and the Father is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and then there's open there's open communication again. If you are not receiving answers and you are not receiving wisdom and you are not receiving anything, search your heart for sin. See if there's a reason why you're hitting a brick wall because it's not like God. Search your heart and see if there's something between you and God that is keeping God from regarding your prayers because you're regarding sin in your heart. And get it right so that the so that the lines of communication can be open again. The illustration that I use at the jail, I tell people, you know, my wife and I, we've been married now for almost 11 years, and when we got married, we were bound together, right, till death do us part. Now, just because we're together doesn't mean we're always in good fellowship. I do something wrong, she does something wrong, we hurt each other, there's a distance put between us. When that happens, we don't become unmarried, right? We're still married, there's just distance put between us. And then when we finally realize we did something wrong, you come up and say, honey, I should not have done that. Please forgive me. There's forgiveness. We don't have to go back to the marriage altar and put rings on each other's fingers again. We just forgive and then we're brought back into fellowship. When you sin, you don't lose Christ. You're not unsaved. You're still saved, but there is a distance. There's something between you and the Father that is going to clog up your fellowship and your ability to communicate. You clear that up and the, the lines are open again. This is again the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God, is there anything in my life between you and me? And then trust that if the, and trust the Holy Spirit to show it to you. Something comes to mind? Yep, that was sin. I've got to get that right. I've got to take care of it. You confess it to the Lord. If nothing comes to mind, don't think, uh-oh, that must mean... You know, if you're listening and you're trying, God's not going to hide it from you. The Spirit of God will tell you. Spirit of God will make it known. Listen, look, be observant. And then finally, Thanksgiving. And that's just where you praise God. And um, uh, that's because this was about prayer. Prayer and acknowledgement of God's will. This is me acknowledging God's will. Not praying in God's will or for God's will, but simply acknowledging God's will. Don't forget when you see the answers to prayer, like what Greg said about all the, red, the green lights and the spot. Don't forget to acknowledge God. God, thank you. You did that for me. And maybe even acknowledge it publicly. 
Guess what God did for me today? This was God. God is good. God wants that from us. It's, it's, it's one of those things as a parent, right, where it can be a thankless job, right? Your kids get three squares a day. How often do they come up and say, hey, thank you for working tirelessly to put money, to put money in the bank and food on the table? Uh, they just open the fridge and say, hey, why are we out of milk, right? And, and, and well, th- thank you, you know, <laughs> uh, for, 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 you know, appreciating everything that your parents do for you. Uh, it's nice to be appreciated, and you know what? God deserves it more than anyone for the things he does for us. Um, beware of God's permissive will. So, uh, questions, before, questions on prayer before we talk about God's permissive will. Okay. Um, step number th- uh, three, the last bit, beware of God's permissive will. I give you this little idea. First thing, the concept of the free will of man. It is important to understand that man does have a free will. So we have God's word and God's will and we have man's will. And I give you a little situation here where God's will is made known to a man through his word and by extension his character and nature as found in his word. Knowing clearly God's will, a man decides rather to pursue his own will and God chooses to allow the man to pursue his own will even though that man knows God's will. And this is called the permissive will of God. This is where God has a plan, where God has a will, and you know God's will, and you are choosing not to, not to, to obey God's will. And God opens the doors for you to disobey Him. There's, there's this young lady in my church, and um, she was told by her parents, you may not get online and use social media. So she went behind their back, and she got onto this dating site, and she met this guy during the free trial period because she wasn't going to pay. So she just got onto the free trial period. And she met this guy during the free trial period. And they started talking. And this guy was everything she'd always wanted. He was a mountain man, lives in Idaho, and uh, had, a, had a ranch. She, and this is her to a T, right? She's, just, she's an outdoorsy girl. She's always been one of those. And, and she had the opportunity to go out there to work on a horse ranch. She loves horses. She's, she owned horses when they were younger. And, and so she goes behind her, her parents' back, and for months she's talking to this, this boy. And then as it turns out, they end up, um, she, she basically says, Mom and Dad, I've been, seeing, I've been talking to this guy. He's out in Idaho. We've never met before, but I love him, and I'm going to go out there and move in with him, and we're going to get married. And I'm leaving in a week. And they say, what about God? And she says, it's so clearly God's will. He's opened up all the doors. It's everything I've ever asked for. He's everything I've ever wanted. And the question was, is God going to bless you with everything you've ever wanted as the fruit of rebellion? Right? She was rebelling against her parents. She got onto the site she was not supposed to get on. She did it. Uh, she lied to them. She did it against their will. The Bible says, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Is God going to see her live in rebellion, lie to her parents, cheat and deceive, and say, you, are, you have found my will through lies, rebellion, and deceit? Never. 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 That's the filter of the word of God, right? That's not how God works. God does not show you his will through lies and deceit. So here she is, and she is convinced because all the doors open for her that she's in God's will. Because it's everything she ever wanted. She must be in God's will. She's not in God's will. 
amazingly. Uh, this was almost two years ago. They're still not married. They, 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 um, she, she works at this horse ranch, and she's not happy. She is not happy. But now she is proud and ashamed and afraid that it would be... You know, now she says, I've made a commitment. I can't go back on it. But you haven't sealed any deals yet, so come home. Come home and repent. She's not repenting because she's proud, because she doesn't want to. She's remaining in it. But it was so clearly not God's will. And, 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 and aside from any, uh, all the stuff she wanted, how do you know it was not God's will? Because of the way it came about. The fruit of those decisions were sin. And you know what, what, what is really unfortunate? Is if in her rebellion, all of the stuff that she thought she wanted was there, imagine what God would have given to her if she'd have done right. Imagine what God actually had for her. Sometimes we don't even know what we want. We think we know what we want, and then God gives us something else, and we say, yeah, God, you were right. That's what I really wanted. So much better than anything I could have otherwise thought or imagined. We need to be careful. And so the permissive will, will of God. And we see the case study of this in, uh, in a man named Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. Let me just give you this to you briefly. So in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, there's a prophet, and his name is Balaam. Have we, have we talked about Balaam, I think, a little bit. But the, there's a prophet, right? And his name is Balaam. And uh, the, the princes of, of Moab come to him and say, there's this group of people wandering in the desert named the children of Israel. And, and we know that you are a mighty prophet. And the people that you curse are cursed. And the people you bless are blessed. So we want you to curse Israel. And so he says, well, I'll ask God. And so he asks God. And God says, don't go with them. Don't curse the nation. He comes back, he says, sorry, I can't go with you. I can't curse the nation. God said, no, get out of here. So they leave. The king says, that's not good. That's not enough. So he sends more princes and he sends more money. And he comes back to Balaam and he says, here's more money. Here's more honorable people. I will give you more honor. You come curse the people. And Balaam says, uh, let me go ask God again. Should he ever have asked God again? Absolutely not. He already knew the answer. Don't go with them. Don't curse this people. How is more money in Balaam's pocket going to change God's will? Right? So he goes and he says, God, can I do this? And God says, go for it. Why would God say that? Why wouldn't God just say no again? Because God has given us free will. And if, when we know clearly the word of God, we say, well, God, isn't there a loophole here? Where's your loophole? God's going to say, you know what? If you want to go that way, I'm going to go. So Balaam starts to go that way. And of course, he's riding a donkey, right? And that donkey turns aside because there's an angel standing in the way with a sword ready to kill Balaam. So he turns aside and hurts Balaam's leg and, and he beats the donkey. And then it happens again. Turns aside, he beats the donkey. Happens a third time. He's beating the donkey and God allows the donkey to talk. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? I'm saving your life. I've been a faithful donkey to you since, since I was a, 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 tiny, a, a tiny baby donkey. I am saving your life. And Balaam says, what do you mean? And God opens his eyes and Balaam sees the angel there with the sword. And the angel says, if that, do if that donkey had not turned aside, I would have killed you. And he says, oh, okay, good. Do you want me to turn around? And the angel says, no, go. Why? Because what Balaam should have said is, I'm turning around right now. But he was still looking for the loophole. And God is not going to resist man's free will. So Balaam goes and he gets there. And Mo, uh, the king of Moab says, look, I want you to curse this people. And Balaam says, you know I can't curse the people. I've told you I can't curse the people. And the king says, here's more money. Balaam says, I'll try to curse the people. So he gets up there and he tries to curse the people. And this is where God actually overrides his will. 
at the point where Balaam attempts to curse the people, he opens his mouth to curse the people and out comes a blessing. And he tries three times to curse the people and each time he blesses the people instead. And Balaam says, this isn't working. And the king of Moab says, yeah, it's not working. And he gets angry. And, and then the Bible says, the Bible transitions to the next chapter where all of a sudden these Moabitish prostitutes were in the nation and caused God to curse the people because they had fallen into fornication. And the Bible in the New Testament calls that the doctrine of Balaam. What actually happened is this. Balaam says, look, God won't let me curse the people, but if you'll give me all of that money and honor that I want, I'll tell you how to curse them, even though I can't curse them with my mouth. Cause them to sin. And when you cause them to sin, you won't have to, I won't have to curse the people. God will punish the people for their sin. And so they sent prostitutes into the land to cause the nation to sin. And that was Balaam's idea. That's the permissive will of God. Be careful. Because if you know the will of God and you try to worm your way out of it and you start asking God for things that are not, you know that are not his will, God, won't you just let me have this relationship with this married woman in adultery? God opened all the doors. God opened all the doors for it. And I love her and this and that, right? And, and, and all the doors were opened and, and it's like perfect. We're soulmates. God must be in it. God's not in it. He may have opened the doors for you because you, are, you know exactly what he expects of you and you are... You're, you're, you're ignoring it anyway. So God might actually let you go down that path. That's what he did to Balaam. But it's not his, his, his perfect will. It's his permissive will. And the permissive will of God is a dangerous place to be. So I give you a couple applications of this. Uh, salvation. The Holy Spirit of God convicts a man of sin. The man knows it's God's will for him to be saved. But, uh, uh, but God still gives that man a choice. Whether to accept or reject and such. I give you a, a few of those. Um, and I give you a clarification here. This is not for the person who is seeking God's will and does not yet know it. If I'm saying, God, I don't know your will, this is not the permissive, you don't fall into the permissive will of God if you don't know his will. Right? God, should I do that or shouldn't I? And it's not in the Bible. And then God starts opening the doors and you say, Ah, the doors are opening. Oh, but maybe this is the permissive will of God. No. Permissive will of God is when you know what God wants and you are walking in rebellion. And at every point, God is saying, you have the chance to turn around, but I am going to let you go. And you know you should turn around, but you don't. And you know that this can't be right, but, but you don't turn around. That's the permissive will of God. It's not, I don't know what God's will is, and then doors start to open. Don't be afraid of that. Don't think, uh-oh, I might be in the permissive will of God. That's not how God is. God's not malicious. If you are asking, seeking, knocking, and this is not an issue of thus saith the Lord, and you're ignoring it, God's not going to lead you into, into, into his permissive will and then just like stand up there laughing, right? Okay, step number four. And this is, this is the... the uh, I, 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 there is more here how to pray... Um, that I skipped. Feel free to read that if you want to learn more about prayer. Um, maybe we can talk about it next week if, if you all are interested. But step number four, good, better, and best principle. So when we talk about good, better, and best, and I give you a little chart here about biblical decision-making, and the good, better, and best is on the very final page there. Um, there's uh, with, with a few fences and an umbrella. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the good, better, and best principle is what degree of protection do your propensities demand of you? Even if something is not sin. You know, we, we talked, uh, I, I guess it was 
uh, in that first week or maybe not with, with we talked about how, how Greg has said before that he's an all or nothing kind of guy and that's why he doesn't drink, right? And the fact of the matter is it's not explicitly wrong to have a drink but Greg knows that because he's an all or nothing guy that if he were to get into it, it would probably not end well for him, right? And so this is the idea of what degree of protection do your propensities demand of you? He says the degree of protection that I need in that particular realm is that I don't touch a drink in order to protect myself from the danger of sin. What degree of action or inaction does my conscience ask of me? Even if something is okay, this goes back to that very first point, right? Just because something is... Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because something is not explicitly sinful, but what if I, what if I don't feel right about it? And then what level of rewards is your faith compelling you into? It's possible to not sin and still not receive maximum rewards. So let's talk about biblical decision making. So I give you all of the different possibilities, right? Music and dress and relationships and family and house and land and whatever else it might be. The first thing that we do, as we've talked about, we pass it through the character of God and the word of God. Does it reflect God's person? Holy, orderly, balanced, God cannot lie. Pre-fall intent or the ideals. What's the ideals? Innocence, purity, beauty, perfection, glory of God. Pass it through the word of God. Does it filter on the other side? D- does, does what I desire pass through the word of God? And notice behind everything is prayer. Right? Prayer is everywhere in, in the background. Pray through it all. The next step, what's my heart motive? Do I want this thing in pride or am I being humble in, in genuineness? Now, you can deceive yourself all day and you're going you're gonna to sabotage the process. If you want to pretend that you're humble but you're really in pride and, and, and just so that you can get what you want, okay, you're, you're no longer in the realm of biblical decision making, right? You're in the realm of trying to justify your actions. But are you being proud or humble? Is this self-will or is this God's will? Are, are you trying to seek control or are you yielding to the Lord? Is this an emotional response or is this a response based upon truth and reality? Filter your decision first through the character and the word of God. Does it comply with God? Then my heart motive. Is my heart motive right? What pleases God conforms to his character, conforms to his word, bears the fruit of the spirit, bears the fruit of righteousness. And then that brings me to good, better, best. Right. So this is kind of what we're looking for in the general realm. This is the 95% of all decisions type idea. What displeases God? Sin and transgression and iniquity. All stemming from pride. Sin. Nothing is amoral. Everything can be done for or against the glory of God. Everything can build up treasure in heaven or uh, wood, hay, and stubble. So we are looking. We, We filter our decisions. What should I wear? What should I listen to? What relationship should I have? Where should my family go? What does the character of God say? Does Do the decisions... I want to do reflect the character of God properly. What's my heart motive in wanting to take my family there and wanting to do that thing? Is it right or is it selfish? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it pure or is it tainted? And then, of course, does it please God? Does it bear the fruit of the Spirit? Does it bear the fruit of righteousness? Does it conform to His Word? Does it conform to His character? And then we come to good, better, and best. Before we talk about good, better, and best, any questions on this general chart here? Okay, then let's talk about good, better, and best. So we've talked about this before. Imagine life as a cliff, and then at the edge of that cliff is sin. Sin is when you fall 
over the cliff. That is where you contradict the character of the law or the will of God. The character of the will or the, or the word of God. At that point, you have fallen into sin. This is explicitly wrong. But there are a lot of things in life that aren't explicitly wrong. And we have to decide where we fall into this. That, and so what we do in our lives is we set up standards. We set up standards, so, uh, which, I, which I call fences. And the fences that we put up in our lives are fences that we erect that are ours. They're not for you. They're, not, they're, 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 for, they're for me. You may not have the same fence that I have. Now, sin is the same for, for you and I. Now, you and I both have to make the decision. Am I going to do that thing that's sinful? And we both want to say no. And you may be able to say no, and that's no problem to me, right? Stealing, okay? We, we look at something, and one of us might say, stealing is sin, and I'm not going to steal. That's it. Done. Decision made. I don't need a fence in my life because I'm just not going to steal. Someone else may say, you know what? I really want that. I'm going to steal that. But they know it's wrong, and it's sin. What they need to do is they need to put up a protection in their life because they have a tendency toward that sin. So a fence is something that we come up against, a standard that we come up against, whereby it stops us from going towards sin. It's a standard, right? So it may be a standard of music. It may be a standard of dress. It may be a standard of where I will and won't go. It may be a standard of what I will and won't do. Maybe a standard of the kind of people I will and I won't hang out with because of my decisions to not fall into sin. And these are going to be in different places for everyone, but sometimes there's a good and a better and a best. Sometimes there's a good decision. This is acceptable. It's not sin, but it is dangerous. See, because if I jump over that fence, I'm awful close to the edge. And some of us like to live on that edge. We like to push the boundaries of what is sin and live on the very boundaries of God's expectations of us. And the problem with that is whenever I do, because I'm human, fail, whenever I jump over the fence in, in a fit of selfishness, I've jumped into sin immediately. But what if I put that fence back a little bit and then I, because I'm human, have a bad day and I jump over the fence? I'm still somewhat far back from the cliff of sin. Now, I've offended my own standard, but I haven't actually fallen into sin. And of course, the danger here is what a lot of churches do especially traditional churches, is that they turn these standards into sin or not sin, right? So that if a person offends the standard, then they're actually, they, they see them as sinning, even though it's not sin. The standard isn't there to say, am I or am I not sinning? The standard is there to keep me back from the cliff of sin. This is one of those things that happens in my circles, because I'm a very conservative church, right? We've got young ladies in our church that, that um, you know, will not wear skirts that, that go like, that, all the way to their toenails all the time. It's a standard. Now, if they wore a skirt that only came up to mid-calf, uh, mid, mid, mid is there anything about that explicitly that, that would be sinful? Now, I mean, depending on the style and tightness and all that. You know. But anyway, the idea being, if every, all things being equal, the only difference was the length of the skirt, that's not really a sin proposition, but the standard is there in order to, they've put the standard there in order to keep themselves from the cliff. Now, the danger is when Somebody comes in in a skirt that's only to the, the mid-calf and they say, sinner. No, 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 right? And that's the danger that this can fall into. So we need to be careful. That's called legalism. But the actual standards themselves are not legalism. If I hold a standard for myself because I want to protect myself and my family, what's that to you? 
And why is that wrong? I don't own a television. I don't care if anyone else does, but I'm not going to. That's my standard. Now, if I say, if you own a television, you're in sin, I'm legalistic. I'm, I'm telling you that my standard is now your moral compass. Wrong. But if I say, for, for the sake of myself and my family, I don't want to own a television, because there's very little of value on it, maybe I've just set up a standard because I want what's best, and I believe that's how I can gain it. So, good. Acceptable but dangerous. Could lead to sin. Could damage my testimony. Could offend a conscience. Minimal glory to God, praise and worship. Minimal heavenly rewards because I'm flirting with the edge. I'm, I'm as close as I can be to the world without being in the world and sometimes I slip into the world. The better standard. The better standard. These things are fine but often ineffective, right? Marginal glory to God. Marginal security from the danger of sin. Marginal testimony. Marginal heavenly rewards. And then there's the excellence. The best. And, 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 and this breaks down a little bit. I'm not saying that everybody who who doesn't put up a fence in their life toward a particular sin is not seeking that which is best. Like I said, if you, don't have, a, if, if you have no temptation toward stealing, then you don't need a fence. That, that's not you taking the low road. That's not you taking only the good road. But just stick with me as far as I'm trying to illustrate this here. We, we, we seek for what is best. We seek for the maximum glory to God, maximum security from the danger of sin, maximum testimony and influence, maximum heavenly rewards. This is what we want. This is what we seek. And this comes back to that question that I asked in point number four. Um, what level of reward is your faith compelling you unto? You know, it's possible that you could, I mean, without sin, right? Without, without any sort of sin, you can say, this is the life I'm choosing for myself. We're going to do this, and we're going to make this kind of money, and we're going to be happy, and we're going to have that. And that's fine and, and, and well and good. But there might be another man that says, you know what, I can gain the rewards of heaven in that life, but if I, if I become a missionary, then I'll have more opportunity to gain reward. And so he decides to take a different path that yields more of this life for more of the life to come. Not everyone chooses that path, and not everyone is called to. And yet that man is going to receive something special for his yieldedness. And then notice over all of this is God's grace. And that, that, that umbrella, I call it the, the umbrella of God's sovereignty. This is the peace of God when we make decisions. God does not force his children to grasp in darkness. If you're prayerfully trying to find God's will, he will not hide it from you. God does not sit up in heaven laughing at you when you're groping around. God, what do you want from me? I just want to know your best. And God is just like, ha, 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 here you are. You're going this way and you just missed it. You just missed it by a day. And he's, he's not laughing at you while you're groping in darkness. God wants you to know his will. God wants you to find his will. He wants you to. He is doing everything that he w will do outside of turning you into a robot. He's, he will do everything within the context of your free will to help you find his best for you because he wants his best for you. So don't ever think that, that God is this malicious God who's in the heavens kind of playing games with you. He's, that's not the kind of God he is. And, and this umbrella of God's sovereignty, that I, as I call it, is so important to me because I'm a parent and I'm not always a good parent. I don't always make the right decisions. You know, I seek for what is best for my children 
but I, I don't always hit it. You know, we don't own a television, but that does not mean I don't say, hey, children, you're really bothering me today. Let me sit down, let me sit you down to this movie on the computer to babysit you for a little while, to get you out of my hair, right? That's maybe not the best parenting decision to, to, cause, you know, to, to let the kids watch a movie uh, or, or even a couple of movies in a row just because I want them out of my hair so I can go do what I need to do. Uh, uh, maybe something more profitably could have been done with that time. And yet, what I can trust is this, that as I'm doing my best, even though I'm fallible and even though I'm weak, and even though I don't always make the right decisions, and even though I have to go to God and say, God, I did it again, I got angry with my, my child, and I shouldn't have done that, and I have to apologize to them because I lashed out in anger, and, and that's setting a bad example, or here I am again, and I, I did this, or I did that, and, and I, I'm not being a very good parent. Here's what I can trust. That if I'm, if I'm, if I'm really trying, God knows I'm human, and I can trust the umbrella of God's sovereignty to make up the difference where I fail. Because God is not standing up there saying, I'm just waiting for you to do that one wrong thing so that I can make your family collapse. That's not God. God is, God is up there. You're doing your best. I will make up the difference for you. Principles for making good decisions. Stay within the fence of God's moral will. Don't go over that cliff. Decision-making starts where biblical absolutes stop, right? If it's a biblical absolute, if the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, it's not even a decision. Just obey the Bible. The wrong goal is the perfect decision. The right goal is the wise decision. I pulled this from a systematic theology lecture. The, the, the wrong goal is a perfect decision. Don't necessarily try to be perfect in everything. You're just going to frustrate yourself. A wise decision. Just seek the Lord and trust the umbrella of His sovereignty to make up the difference for you. So Philippians 4 verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. If you will, take the Bible at His word, filter your decisions through the word of God, <coughs> seek the will of the Spirit through prayer, listen Observe, And then finally, set up fences in your life where you need them to protect yourself from the cliff of sin. And then decide, what is it that I really want out of this life and the life to come? And dedicate yourself to the very best that you can. You're going to be very well. You're going to do very well. You will please the Lord. And it doesn't always mean that everything's going to be hunky-dory in this life, right? Because there's Syrian Christians who have have gone through this whole rigmarole and then the end of it is them getting their head chopped off by ISIS because of their devotion to the Word of God, right? So I'm not saying that, that this will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. But all things being equal, it will bring you joy and peace and spiritual success in whatever avenue of life you apply it to. Final questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. Yeah. 
himself even though might have shortened well it wasn't going to shorten life either way any choice you make you're going to die right well in, the, in their case absolutely yeah but uh, but to stand it up you know at the time I mean having actually somebody there that could record yeah Yeah, Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of those. Um, there's also a book called The Martyr's Mirror, which is full of those. And you know, one of, one of those famous pictures is the picture of the Roman Colosseum and the lions standing looking at this group of Christians who are down on their knees praying. And that, that, that's not a fable. Uh, you know, uh, Nero dipped Christians in oil, lit them on fire to light his gardens. And... You know th- this stuff happened, and, and so the idea is the the Lord does not promise us health and wealth and such. We ha- we happen to be in a country where, because we still have inherent freedoms, um, all things being equal in a country such as this where we have freedoms, the Christian is going to be well because he's honest. He's making he's he's. Uh, has his integrity and the Lord will will allow him to be the beneficiary of the freedoms of this country. He has work ethic, he has honesty, you know, those sorts of things. And, and any, any person in this country that has work ethic and, and integrity and whatnot, at least historically, has been, been able to do just fine. That doesn't mean things don't go bad. As a matter of fact, the man that wrote, I don't know if you've ever heard the song, It Is Well With My Soul. The man who wrote that is a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford um, was a, a, a businessman and he um, was going to a business trip in London from, from, I believe, New York. So he, he had to finish up his, his work at, in the States. And so he sent his wife and his daughters ahead. And he had four daughters, I think. And um, the, the boat was shipwrecked. And his wife is the only one that made it from the shipwreck. All of his daughters were killed. So she gets to England and she writes, saved alone. And she sends it to him. And so he gets there, and of course he immediately gets on a boat to go be with his wife. And, his wi- and, and they, they, the boat he's on stopped at the place where the other boat went down. And that's when he wrote that song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot God hath taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He gets to England, his wife is there, they end up having more children, and all of those children ended up dying too. Uh, it was not like he, ha- it was all cherries and roses for him. And yet, in the midst of it, he had this peace. It was well with his soul because he was right with the Lord. He knew he'd see his children again and he was, he, he was going to stick with the Lord. Okay, so that's biblical decision making. I hope it was clear and I hope it will be helpful to you. And if you have any questions either now or as the time goes uh, on, you know, if you try to apply these principles and there's a kink, there's a speed bump, there's something that, uh, I'm trying this and it's not really working, come see me, ask me about it. Um, and I'd be happy to, to help you through it and uh, to get you to the other side of it so that you can be successful. Next week will be our final week. Um, we, I'm not quite sure exactly what we're going to do yet. We, we do have a couple of things that I have not yet covered as far as spiritual progression and regression uh, is, is the one particular. We might cover that or we might try to do kind of a smorgasbord. Greg had asked about tithing a couple of weeks ago and he wanted some insight into that. And um, uh, we'll see what the Lord, how the Lord leads as far as um, things to 
to present to you. If you have anything that you've been curious about that you would like to talk about, let me know tonight. And if we end up kind of going in that open forum direction, then uh, we can, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cover it. And I'll, I'll try to give you some answers to the questions that you seek.